gospel. John Stott said the following about love in his book, The Cross of Christ. Only one act of pure love, unsullied by any taint or of ulterior motive, has ever been performed in the history of the world, namely the self-giving of God in Christ on the cross for undeserving sinners. That is why, if we are looking for the definition of love, we should not look in a dictionary, but at Calvary. If we're looking for the definition of love, we should not look in a dictionary, but at Calvary, at the cross. This morning, you guessed it, we're talking about love again. All we need is love, right? That's what we've been talking about. We talked about several different things on Sunday mornings, but it all comes back to this important concept of love. We talked about it just a few weeks ago as we talked about how we should love one another and the importance of loving each other and uh, spreading that love here at the church with one another. We talked about, about it the week before uh, that as we read about the great love that God has lavished upon us. That wonderful word lavish means to... Uh, um, pour out abundantly, that God is going to pour out, his, he has poured out his love abundantly on each and every one of us, uh, and uh, not only has he poured out this love on us, but he calls us his children, as we talk about being God's children, and how we are all children of God. John is obsessed with this idea of love. The words love, loved, or loves occur in his gospel a total of 47 times. In the book of John, 47 times the word, some form of the word love appears. Uh, those words occur in this short letter, in, in just five chapters of 1 John, uh, a total of 32 times. The word love occurs 24 times in the book of 1 John. 24 times he uses the word love. This, this idea of love is very important to John, and I think, it's not that I think, I know that it should be important to us as well. This concept of love, this importance of love, this should be so important to us. It should be vital to our lives. It should be vital to our life uh, as a church. Uh, and this morning, we're going to talk about three truths of love. We're going to talk about three truths about love. The first truth that we need to understand is that God is love. John's, John says it in chapter 4, verse 16. God is love. If you've got your Bible, turn to John chapter 4. <coughs> And we're going to look at verses 7 through 21 here in just a little bit. And I don't have a... That's all right. That'll work. Now, God is a lot of things. God is holy. God is just. God is good. God is full of grace. God is merciful. God is a whole lot of things. He is powerful. God is everywhere. God is great. We, sing, we say the little children's prayer when we're, when we're young. God is... Great, God is good, let us thank him for our food, let's eat. Some of you may say that this week as you're waiting for turkey. Come on, forget the long prayer, let's do the nice short children's prayer. John wants his audience to focus on, the, on, the, uh, on this idea of love. That, that when it comes to the attributes and the characteristics and the qualities of God, the one thing that he wants us to focus on is God is love. He wants his readers to know for certain that God is love. Paul said that the greatest thing of all, is love. These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And uh, John says that God is that. God is love. He is the very definition of love. You want to know what love is? Look to God. That's what love is all about. Uh, Jesus told a story about the great love of the Father. It's called the story of the prodigal son. Uh, Philip Yancey updated it for the October 6, 1997 issue of Christianity Today. And I want to read this story for you. This is the story of the prodigal son told in a modern setting. And if I get through this without crying, it will be amazing. 
A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to and the length of her skirt. They ground her a few times. She seethes on the inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only uh, once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in, in lurid details the gangs, drugs, and violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that is probably the last place her parents would look for her. California maybe, maybe Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about her folks back home. But their lives now seem so boring, so provincial, that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her face and a picture on a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now, she has blonde hair. And with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows, when winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Well, sleeping really isn't the word. A teenage girl at night in downtown, downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle under her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty, and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her, and she shivers under the newspaper she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory in her mind, and a single image fills her brain of May in Traverse City, when a million cherry trees bloom at once, with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? she asks, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up, up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and they don't get the message? Shouldn't she have waited until uh, maybe another day or so until she could talk to them? 
Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even more as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in forever. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the road in front of the bus, and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road, and the bus swerves. Every so often, a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City, and she thinks, oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest. The driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we got here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains under her fingernails and wonders if her parents will notice if they're even there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect, and not one of the thousand scenes that played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They are all wearing ridiculous-looking party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads... Welcome home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She looks through tears and begins to memorize speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I know. And he interrupts her and says, Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. Do you get it? Do you understand that that is the kind of love that God has for each and every person in this room? That when we wander away, that when we walk away in sin and rebellion and and we reject him, he's there waiting in all of his love and grace and mercy. He is there waiting for us to come home. And when he does, when we come home, when we say, I'm, I'm, God, I'm coming home. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't live without you anymore. I, I got to come home. And when we come home, we fear the worst. We, fear like, we feel like he's going to berate me. He is going to punish me. He is going to discipline me. He is gonna, he's going to beat me. And that's exactly what I deserve. I, I deserve to be smited. And the most mind-blowing thing happens when we finally decide to come back home, when we finally decide to, to, to return to where we belong. And, and that amazing thing is that God is there with his arms wide open, running towards us saying, my child, you've come home. At last, you've come home. I have been waiting and waiting and waiting for you to come home. And he embraces us, and he kisses us on the cheek, says, I'm so glad to see you. John says that God is love. Do you get that? Do you understand that? 
Is that clicking? Is that making sense? God is love. He cannot help but love you. He looks down on you in your pain and your frustration and in the difficulty of life, and he loves you in spite of it all. As we look to the sky and say, are you there, God? Do you see me? Do you even care? And of course, he does. He knows what we're going through, and he loves us in spite of it. The world doesn't comprehend this kind of love. They just don't get it. They think that God is this vengeful, vindictive party pooper sitting on a cloud somewhere, and they couldn't be more wrong because God is love. Say it with me. God is love. The second truth that John wants his audience to understand is, what, is that God loves us. Look here at 1 John chapter 4. Verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I want to read a couple more verses. Verses 13 through 16 of John chapter 4. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And verse 19 says we love because he first loved us. Do you hear those verses? Do you hear what John is trying to communicate to us? God loves you. God loves me. John says that God proved his love by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into the world that we might live through him. Jesus came to earth. Why? Because God loves us. John 3.16, the greatest truth in all of Scripture, says that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not be punished for eternity but will have everlasting life. Jesus came as a demonstration of the great love of God. During the war in Vietnam, a young West Point graduate was sent over to lead a group of new recruits into battle. He did his job well, trying his best to keep his, from, to keep his troops from ambush and death. But one night, one night when they were under attack, he was unable to get just one of his men to safety. The soldier left behind had been severely wounded. From their trenches, the young lieutenant and his men could hear him in his pain. They all knew any attempt to save him, even if it was successful, would almost mean certain death for his rescuer. Eventually, the young lieutenant crawled out of hiding toward the dying man. He got to him safely, but he was killed before he could save himself. After, he was rescued, after the rescued man returned to the States, the lieutenant's parents heard that he was in the vicinity. Wanting to know this young man whose life was spared at such a great cost to them, they invited him over for dinner. When their honored guest arrived... He was obviously drunk. He was rowdy and obnoxious. He told off-color jokes and showed no gratitude for the sacrifice of the man who died to save him. The grieving parents didn't their best to, they could to make the young man's visit worthwhile, but their efforts went unrewarded. Their guest finally left. As the dad closed the door behind him, the mother collapsed in tears and cried to think that our precious son had to die for somebody like that. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is how much God loves us. Jesus didn't tell God that he wouldn't die for so-and-so because they wouldn't appreciate it. He, said, he did not say, I'm not going to die for Sean because Sean's not going to appreciate it. I'm not going to die for Sean because Sean's going to take it for granted. I'm not going to die for Sean because Sean, even though he knows that I died for him, even though he knows that I gave my life for him, still sins anyway. 
Jesus didn't say that to God. He didn't tell his father that he wouldn't die for me. He died for everyone in this room. He died for every sinner on earth, even if they reject him. He he died for those who were crucifying him. He died for those who were beating him. He died for those who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. He died for you. He died for me. And that's how we know for certain that God loves us. To think, to think that his precious son had to die for somebody like me. The first time I saw the passion of the Christ. How many of you have seen the passion of the Christ? I was so overcome with my own sin that I just buried my head in my wife's arm and I just bawled and I sobbed and I cried. To think that the perfect Lamb of God had to suffer in such a horrible way because of my sins, because of what I have done, and because of what you have done, and because of what we will do. It's my fault. And I'm sorry to say, it's your fault too. To think, to think that his son had to die for somebody like us. The third truth about love that John wants us to grasp this morning is that we are to love one another. See, God is love. God loves us. And he wants us to love one another. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Verses 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I think it's pretty clear. We're supposed to love one another. Watch this video. She asked him for forever, and I promised that would last. He said, baby, no, I love you, but I can't commit to that. She said, love isn't love, do you give it away? A father lived in silence, saw a son become a man. There was a distance fell between them, because he could not understand that love isn't love.
isn't love till you give it away love isn't love till you give it away the early church got it if you read the book of acts you see acts of love all over the place they truly loved one another they understood it so well they knew that love wasn't love until you gave it away if we want to restore new christian new testament christianity like our movement's founders wanted us to we have got to restore the love that those first christians had for one another we need to look out for one another we need to care for one another we have got to love one another say it with me we got to love one another that means investing your life in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That means being there when somebody needs you. It means sharing your life, sharing your heart, sharing your shoulder. That means coming alongside your brothers and sisters and helping them carry their burdens. It means listening when they're going through a tough time. It means visiting them when they're lonely and heartbroken. It means filling up their tank with gas when they can't afford it. It means treating them the way that Jesus would treat them. He sacrificed everything for us. Are we willing to do the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ? There was a certain medieval monk who announced that he would be preaching next Sunday evening on the love of God. As the shadows fell and the light ceased to come in through the cathedral windows, the congregation gathered. In the darkness of the altar, the monk lit a candle and carried it to the crucifix. First, he illuminated the crown of thorns. Next, the two wounded hands and then the marks of the spear wound. In the hush that fell, he blew out the candle and left the chancel. That was all the sermon he needed. You want to know about the love of God? Look to the cross, because that's where God demonstrated his love. That's where the ultimate definition of love is found, is at the cross of Christ. You know, we just celebrated communion a little while ago, and we remembered the ultimate expression of love. I don't know. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're thinking right now. Um, you know, if, if you've never accepted Jesus' offer of salvation, the, the reason that... We know what love is because Jesus died for us. 
And if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, if you have never said, Jesus, I believe, if you have never said, uh, I want Jesus to forgive me of my sins, that's why he died, so that our sins could be forgiven. We want to invite you to do that. You can be forgiven today. Come and say, come and confess your faith in Christ and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. We invite you to come and do that today. That's what the Bible says, and that's what we want to do. And uh, if you are a believer in Christ and you've been baptized and you like what you see going on here, you want to become part of our family, you're not part of our family now as, a, as an official member uh, of our family, we invite you to come forward and put your membership with us. Come and, and become part of our family. This congregation of love that we're trying to build, this, it's, it's all about family, and that's what we want it to be. So we invite you to come and become part of our family. Or if you just need to pray with somebody this morning, you're going through a hard time, you're going through a difficulty, and you want somebody to pray with you, we'll have some elders up here at the front who come, you can come and pray with them this morning, and, and, uh, and you can do that. But uh, we're going to stand and sing a song in just a few moments. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the love that you have for us. May we do everything in our power to express the, that love that you've shown us to other people. The song says it best, love isn't love until we give it away. May we be willing to, to give away the love that you have for us, the love that you've shown us. Thank you so much for this chance to hear from your word. And thank you for being the very definition of love. And thank you for sending Jesus who died for our sins. We pray this in his name. Amen.